Welcome back to Tequila She Wrote, a podcast about cocktails and true crime. I'm Sloane, your bartender for today. And I'm Trish, your crime tender. And today we are bringing you the story of the West Memphis Three. This is a very heavy case. It's a case that a lot of us in this community are very like well aware of the details. So if you are not this one does have a good bit of like trigger warnings as do all of <laughs> our episodes lot, but yeah this one it, it gets dark fast it gets dark really fast there are a lot of dark turns and things where the systems failed the case where it should not yes. have and a lot of like the news is coming out to light in current day so we're going to cover all of that but this is definitely just a heads up that this is a in my opinion one of the like heavier cases i try not to make it too heavy but you can't cut out everything so and even cutting things out this just it's a shitty situation all the way around so heads up you're in for a dark ride today (laughs) i was gonna say you're gonna want uh a a few cocktails yes i need to go refill as well so all of that being said buckle up for the hot mess express toot toot beep beep Welcome back to another bartending round with Sloan. I am like 99% sure that I shared this quote unquote recipe with y'all like an episode or two back, but I am uninspired. It's fall season. I really tried hard to come up with like a Sanderson sisters shot or drink in lieu of Hocus Pocus 2 releasing this week, but uh, they were not good. So we're not going to share that. Instead, instead, I'm just going to tell you to mix fireball with apple cider, period. That's all you need. Measure with your heart, but if you want ac- accurate measurements, 1.25 of fireball to 3 to 4 ounces of apple cider. Really, it's to preference, but this drink tastes like fall. Drink it over ice, warm it up in a crock pot all together, like large style. Please do not make one drink at a time on a a crock pot. (laughs) You will be very upset with me. Yes. Make a batch. Pour a bottle, a small bottle of Fireball with like a half gallon of apple cider. And you're set to go for a Friday night. Enjoy! All right, as we said, our case today is the West Memphis Three. And like we kind of did in our intro, want to just reiterate that this case does get dark quite quick. And like Sloan said, there's a lot of like trigger stuff and then just like a complete like breakdown of how trials should go is definitely not a lighthearted case, but, I mean, this is true crime. (laughs) We all know 
that you cannot always have a lighthearted case. We've done a few in the past couple of weeks, so it's time that we we do kind of do a darker case, I guess you could say. I don't know. But before we kind of get into the details of this case, I do want to talk about the three little boys that this case is about, just so that we cannot just see them as victims, but we can also just, like, picture them as, like, the little eight-year-old boys that they were. So the first one I'm going to talk about is Steve Edward Branch. Sorry, I was like, wait a minute. I, like, had to rearrange my notes, like, five times. So I'm like, wait, how did I do this? <laughs> it's a lot of information. So yes. I that. So the victims in this case are Steve Edward Branch, Christopher Byers, and Michael Moore. They were all second graders at Weaver Elementary School, and they were all Cub Scouts, and they all reached the rank of Wolf which I don't know the rankings in Cub Scouts, but I'm assuming that's like probably their brownies. I used to a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to assume like if you're in Girl Scouts, it's probably like their like version of like brownies. And most importantly, these boys were like best friends. So as much as like your heart weeps for them, I guess like a silver lining could go with this is the fact that you know they were friends and they were basically together till the end so not good enough yeah it's not a great way to look at it, but it's, like it's, a, it's you know trying to put some sort of like it's like a gray happy silver, little, <laughs> looks like yeah. a gray lining yeah so like i said the first one i'm going to talk about is steve branch and he was the son of Stephen and Pamela Branch. They divorced when he was an infant and Pamela was awarded custody. She went on to remarry Terry Hobbs. Uh, Steve was eight years old. He was four foot two and weighed about 65 pounds and had blonde hair. And he was an honor student. Christopher Mark Byers was the son of Melissa Defer, I think is how it's said, and Ricky Murray. His parents divorced when he was four years old, and shortly after, his mother married John Mark Byers, who adopted him. He, too, was eight year years old. He was four foot tall, weighed about 52 pounds, and was... Like, he had light, yeah, light brown hair. Mm -hmm. He was described as a typical eight-year-old. He was still, like, he still believed in Santa and the Easter Bunny. And then we have James Michael Moore, who, he went by Michael. I don't know why, but that's how he's referred to and everything. Uh, he was the son of Todd and Dana Moore. He was also eight years old. He was four foot two, weighed about 55 pounds, and had brown hair. He was last seen wearing blue pants, a blue 
Boy Scouts of America shirt and an orange and blue Boy Scout hat. He enjoyed wearing his uniform even when they weren't at meetings. And Michael was considered the leader, like the leader of the three. All right. Now we get into our dark stuff. On May 5th, 1993, Steve Branch, Michael Moore, and, J and Christopher Byers were reported missing in West Memphis, Arkansas. The first report made to police was around 7 p.m., and that was by Christopher's adopted father. Now, the boys were last reported being seen together at around 6.30 by three neighbors. In the same, like, affidavit, they reported seeing Terry Hobbs, who was Steve Branch's stepfather, calling the boys home. A small search was done by police that night, and, like, it didn't turn up anything, but, like, it was dark, so they didn't want to waste too much, I guess, man hours or whatnot mm -hmm. looking in the dark, because they are ser searching, like, a wooded area and that, and so they didn't do a very thorough one. It was just a small one, but, like, friends and family and uh, neighbor like came out and searched for the boys as well again it didn't turn up anything that night around 8 a.m the next morning police were back to do a more thorough search of the area searchers canvassed all of west memphis but mainly focused on robin hood hills which is where the boys were last reported to be seen they did a shoulder to shoulder search like chain of the area and it said they found nothing. But at around 1.45 p.m., juvenile parole officer Steve Jones spotted a boy's black shoe floating in a muddy creek that led to a major drainage canal for Robin Hood Hills. Mm -hmm. When they performed a search of the ditch, they found the bodies of the three boys. They had been stripped naked and hogtied with their own shoelaces. Their clothing was also found in the muddy creek. Some was twisted around sticks in, like, the ditches, like, bed. Most of the clothing was recovered, and, what, and that clothing was turned inside out when they had found it. Um, but two pairs of the boys' underwear were never found. Christopher Byers definitely has the worst injuries out of the three to him. He was um, discovered to have had multiple, like, lacerations on his body. And, again, this gets dark, so if you're not into, like, the gory details, um... You might want to fast forward the, or just, you know, skip this episode. This is not the case for you. Yes, because Christopher Byers, along with the lacerations, he also had his scrotum and penis mutilated. When the autopsies of the boys were conducted, they discovered that Christopher had died of multiple injuries, while Michael and Steve died of multiple injuries with drowning. 
which is just like again they're eight-year-old boys like mm-hmm. they're eight-year-old boys in memphis tennessee like there are not a lot of options to learn how to swim around there yeah and i say that with knowledge of family who grew up in memphis i mean collierville tennessee and I mean, they had, like, private pools in Collierville that you could pay for and whatnot. But, like, for the most part, my cousins learned how to swim at the lake with me in the summers. Yeah. It's just, like, I'm just, like, the fact that there's, like, multiple injuries, like. Yeah. And they don't, they kind of talk about, like, what these injuries were, but not really. Like, in all the articles I've ever found on this, they don't ever really talk about it. They just say, there's pictures. But they're only shown to, like, juries and people. Well, and part of the problem that I'm sure you're going to address later on is that we've recently learned that the police chief got rid of a lot of this evidence. Yeah. So while they're sitting here telling us we have this evidence, you don't actually have this evidence for anybody to look at. So the only people that have ever seen this evidence are the police yeah, it's it's like there's just a lot of stuff that is just so wrong with this whole case. So police first believed the boys had been raped as trace amounts of sperm DNA had been found on a pair of pants, but later expert testimony disputed the rape claim. Prosecution experts claim that Christopher's wounds were the result of a knife attack, which again we have no way of actually knowing because, like we said, a lot of this evidence is lost or just, like, assumed. Um, so, yeah, they believe, like, it's a result of a knife attack and that he was purpose- purposely castrated by the murderer. Defense experts argued that the injuries were most likely done post-mortem by animals. Which, we've never seen the wounds and that, so, you know, it could be that too. Because, like I said, we're just, like, left with what people say. Police also believe that the murders happened where the boys were found, but critics say that at least the assault had to have happened elsewhere. Christopher was the only one of the boys with drugs in his system. Now, his father did say that he took Ritalin for ADHD, but the autopsy didn't list that drug as the one that found that was found. Instead, it was a drug that's often used to help treat people with, like, ep- epilepsy and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. also, this is... This is back, like... 1980s? 1990s? 1990s, 90s? like, early 1990s. Yeah. So, like, how thorough and like how much testing did they have on like what these drugs look like after like it's been in somebody's system they also noted that um his father said that he wasn't even no like he didn't even know if christopher had taken his medication that day which i mean if you're not planning on doing anything why would you take ritalin If you don't think you're going to need to control your ADHD that day. I mean. 
as somebody. He's eight years old. Okay. <laughs> also in Memphis. Yeah. I'm just saying. Like. It's just, you know, it's a lot of, like we said, a lot of this stuff is like you're having to go off of what people have said and like kind of pick what you want to believe and what you should, I guess. I'm always here as the devil's advocate. Yeah. So rumors about the murder soon spread, leading many to believe the killings were done by devil worshippers. Again, this is, like, deep south. Satanic panic. (laughs) Yes. This is on the, like, end of the satanic panic. So, it's not even shocking. Probably once they released, they, you know, it was three little boys, and they had multiple wounds, and then, like, the one was, like, you know, like, Christopher had done to him what, like, had happened. I can see many people being like, them damn devil worshippers once again 1990s yeah end of the satanic panic Uh, so inspector gitchell i think is how you say his name didn't help the rumors when he told reporters the department was looking at the murders as possible cult activity which is where i believe this case starts going wrong right away The West Memphis Police Department assigned the case number 9305-0666 to the murder file. He was just asking for people to believe this is the result of some sort of cult or satanic group. Police had a suspect right away. On May 7th, they interviewed a local troubled teen named Damon Eccles. He was a 17-year-old dropout with a history of psychiatric problems. So, for them, he was a perfect target. Eccles wrote dark poetry, wore all black, had long hair, a tattoo on his upper arm, and he was a self-proclaimed Wiccan. Eccles had a past history of threatening an ex-girlfriend and her new love interest and also his own father. He stayed with his mother for a few months, and during that time he had been admitted to a psychiatric ward and placed under suicide watch. On his return to Arkansas, he was entered into a juvenile detention center, and there he was transferred to a psychiatric hospital in Little Rock because he bit another detainee and tried to suck the blood from the arm. So how true that is, I don't know, but that's what's reported. After he was released, he met with a social worker regularly who reported in their notes that Eccles said he might be another Ted Bundy or Charles Manson. I'm like, But did he? Did he? Juvenile officer Sherry, yeah, Sherry Driver was familiar with Eccles and suspected him immediately being involved with the murders and pushed his thoughts onto other members of the police force. Between May 7th and the 10th, Eccles was questioned three separate times by police 
twice at his trailer and once at the station. He told police he never heard of the boys and whoever murdered them was sick. Eccles told police on May 5th he was at home with his mother talking on the phone with two girlfriends in Memphis. Notes made at the station by Lieutenant James Sudbury said the killer is probably a local that will not run. He also noted that Eccles liked to read Stephen King novels and had evil across his left knuckles. Gasp. <gasps> How dare you have a tattoo oh, that no. says evil. Eccles also willingly took a polygraph, which rule number one, everybody, never take a polygraph. There's just so much scientific evidence. Like, it's just... It's, that it doesn't actually work. Yes. It's just... It's a way for them to basically trip you up. If you pass it, you fail. If you fail, you fail. If you're going to take a polygraph, have a lawyer. Yes. That tells you to take the polygraph. Yes. A lawyer that you trust. Yes. <laughs> because, yeah... You'll see the police rely heavily on polygraphs in this case. And it's just like that that should be enough to just throw this case out in like well, everything. And once again, that's a statement of the time because at the time, what was it, Jerry Springer and all of them yeah, using the lie detectors? Yes. So like the the bulk of the majority of the citizens of this country believed that lie detectors worked. So like absolutely the police and the authorities are going to lean into that because yeah, people believe it works it's just crazy but yes yeah, so Eccles willingly took a polygraph to which the officer administrating it said he recorded significant responses indicative of deception which is a fancy way of saying he failed but Damian Eccles wasn't the only person the police focused on. They also focused on Jason Baldwin, who was a friend of Damian's and also had evil on his knuckles. Ho oh, ho. Clearly, because you have two people with the same tattoo, they're in a cult. I have a lotus tattoo. <laughs> Do you? Are any of you in my cult? <laughs> I have a Disney one. I want a Disney one. <laughs> uh, so Jason too denied being involved in the murders. Police could um, suspect these men without like basically all they wanted to, but without evidence, they really had nothing. And that's where waitress Vicki Hutchinson comes into our case. And this woman, this woman, if I ever met you, <laughs> Vicky told police she would play detective using the 17-year-old neighbor, Jesse Miss Kelly, who would come over and actually babysit her kids and mow her lawn, who she said was a friend of Eccles. She said he told her Eccles drank blood and stuff. And let me just say, Jesse also ha is, like, noted as having an IQ that is significantly lower than, like, your average IQ. 
So I feel like she knew this. She knew she could manipulate him. And she could take advantage of that. So police went ahead and gave Vicky the okay. And she told Jesse that she was interested in Damien. And wanted him to make arrangements for them to meet. Jesse agreed and had Damien come over to Vicky's house and made introductions. Vicky then told police that the night of May 19th, Damien drove her and Jesse in a red Ford Escort, which, let me just say, he didn't own a car and he has never been known to even drive one, but yet he apparently had this car from where we don't know. And she claims that he drove her and Jesse to an S-spot, I think is how it's said, which is basically her a gathering of witches. She said this happened in a field outside of town with ten young people, each with faces and arms painted black, stripping off their clothes and touching each other. She said some of those taking place in the orgy used names like spider snake and lucifer i'm like man can you at least come up with some like less uh generic names <laughs> she said she was offended by the orgy and asked damien to drive her home which he did and they just left jesse at the orgy i'm like you're a great friend yep you're an awesome friend <laughs> In late, in late May, Vicky and her eight-year-old son Aaron met with detectives, which she told her which she told her story, and Aaron told detectives that he and the three boys were actually like friends and would actually often visit the woods together. And once they saw five men sitting in a circle chanting and doing what men and ladies do. On June 2nd, Vicky was given a polygraph. Ho-ho. And the administrator, Bill Durham, said she was telling the truth. Now, police think that they have their murderer. So they pick up Jesse and they bring him in for questioning at 9 a.m. the next day. And he's told that there's a 35 thousand dollar reward for info leading to convictions that he's like basically made to believe that if he can give them information his family will be able to collect so again police decide on a polygraph and jesse originally denies participating in satanic rituals or the murders and detectives just say he's lying so, Jesse is subjected to hours of harsh questioning until he begins to tell detectives what they want to hear. And he basically says that him, Damien, and Jason committed the murders. And I'm not going to bore you with all the details and everything, but basically when I read through like that whole part... Jesse, like, recounted his interrogation with the detectives, like, later on. And it's just, it's rough. It is so, like, horrible what they did to him. He says that they basically fed him what to say, and if he got it wrong, they yelled at him and berated him until he corrected it and had their story straight. 
And once he had their story straight, not his story that he didn't even have, they taped his confession, and using this confession, the deputy prosecutor, John Fulgerman, uh, appeared a before municipal court judge and got warrants to search the teens' homes. On June 3, 1993, Jesse, Damon, and Jason were rounded up and charged with three counts of capital murder. Detective Gitchell, when asked at a press conference how confident he felt about his case from 1 to 10, he said 11. Now, I hate to burst his bubble, but your case is literally held together by like straws. Like a one. It's a one. <laughs> your case is held together by it's straws, my dude. <laughs> but sure, you feel confident in your 11. So yes, our, our, our detective feels like he has an 11, but really, we all know he has a motherfucking one. <laughs> or like a negative one. <laughs> <laughs> like... If he's going for an 11, I'm going for a negative one. If this was a football game, our bets would not be on the detective. No. So, to try to further strengthen their case, detectives decide to re-interview Vicky's son, Aaron. This time, he says he was actually with the three boys in the woods, and he saw them get murdered. He recounts that Jesse invited him and his friends to the woods, and then that they were tied up. But he escaped, and he got away, but he got caught again. And, like, so it's like a back and forth thing for, like, a little bit. Then he says that the reason he is, like, unscathed is because they couldn't hurt him because he kicked the guys. Sure. That makes sense in an eight-year-old's mind. He said his friends were stabbed and then had their clothes pulled off and that's when the mutilation happened and then the three boys were raped. Here's my thing. One, this little kid has a very like implausible story. <laughs> like you were there but you're not traumatized within like the least. You haven't said anything until now. You're unhurt. Nothing's happened to you. Blah, blah, blah. But, like, he brings up the fact that he says, like, they were stabbed and then, like, stripped. But never in anything do you hear about the clothes having any sort of punctures to them. So, again, to me, that just does not make his story plausible. But, good old Detective Gitchell, number 11, 11 on a scale of 10. 10. Oh my god, he is pleased with this and says, Yes, I have my second eyewitness. Tell me the man does not have tunnel vision. So, on August 4th, 1993, a judge had a pre-trial hearing where he ruled that Jesse would have a separate trial from Damien and Jason. He also said that Jesse's confession would be allowed despite defense arguments that it was achieved under coercive circumstances. The judge also ruled that 
the three men would be tried as adults and not as juveniles. So basically, this judge has a pre-like opinion that these guys are guilty. And I want them to have, like, the harshest punishment we can give them. So, on January 18th, 1994, that's when Jesse's trial starts. A jury of seven men, not, sorry, a jury of seven women and five men heard opening statements with, like, from both sides. The state tried to explain the holes in Jesse's confession as his way of lessening his role with the, like, with this case, while the defense said the confession was given under tremendous pressure for arrest and that there was tunnel vision for Damon Eccles, like, by police, which, duh, I think anybody with a sane mind can look at it and say, they, they literally said, we have our suspect, we don't give a shit about anything else. So... The state then decides they're going to bring out the mothers of the murdered boys to, like, kind of testify and, like, talk about the boys and basically get the jury, like, in their little, their little, like, feelings and everything. They also bring out the detective that found the bodies. They're shown grisly photos of the boys and, like... The three bicycles that the boys were riding were brought into the courtroom and propped up for the jurors to see. So, like, the state heavily, heavily relied on, like, provoking emotions out of these jurors. Most people thought Aaron would be brought to testify since he claimed he was there when this all happened. But... Suddenly, Gitchell wasn't so, like, confident in this little boy's story. So instead, he brought out Vicky. And I'm not sure which is the better option, but sure. At least Vicky's, like, a grown person. Even though her story still, to me, makes no fucking sense, but okay. So they bring out Vicky and her sides, her and whatnot. And then... They start getting into what very little physical evidence they have in this case. And there's like zero connecting really any of the three boys, but we're on Jesse's case. So there's zero like connecting Jesse to the case. The only way that they can connect Jesse is that <laughs> there are some microscopic fibers found on a scout cap of one of the boys that are similar not a direct match. They're just a similar match to a shirt that was found at Damon's house. Um, Damien's house, sorry. Mm -hmm. And a red fiber that was similar to one that was found in Jesse's house. You're grasping at straws. Defense attorney Dan Stidham was faced with the decision on whether to bring Jesse on the stand. Now, remember, he has a low IQ, so it's like, do we bring him up and, you know, risk them being able to, like, basically manipulate him on the stand during cross-exam, or do we just keep him off and go on? 
So he decided that he was not going to put Jesse on the stand. Instead, he was going to try his damnedest to poke holes in the prosecution story, which he he does point out some good stuff. But during closing statements that are heard the next day, it doesn't do much to help. And Jesse is... Like, after closing statements, the very next day, Jesse is convicted guilty of first-degree murder on all three accounts and was sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole. Two weeks later is when Damien and Jason's trial began. And the day before the start of the trial, Dan Stidham announced that Jesse would not testify against his co-defendants. And that weakened the prosecution's case significantly because you can't use his testimony. And that just makes their case circumstantial at best. So Jason did try to get his case separated from Damien's because Jason's just really like kind of guilty by association. There's not much talk of him, like, doing anything. Doing anything. It's just, he was oh, you're friends. You were there. <laughs> All right. Um, Jason's attorney opened his statements, like, pointing out how he was a 16-year-old boy. He was not a troublemaker. He would actually help his brothers get up and dress for school in the morning and send them off while his mother slept. He also pointed out how evidence and statements had been twisted to fit the case. Damon, like Damien's attorney opened with basically saying that, yes, Damien had a past and was a little, like, strange and weird. But it was also, like, like Jason said, there's no evidence that these, like, three guys murdered these boys. So the state starts their case just like in Jesse's by bringing in the parents and the detective and then bring out all the emotions again. And during cross-examination, there was a moment where really a mistrial should have been given because one of the detectives brings up, you know, the fact that in Jesse's statement and the Attorneys are like, hey, 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 he didn't give a statement. That's not pertainable to this. And the judge goes, the judge literally was like, I'm not having, I don't care. He goes, there's not anyone here that doesn't know that Jesse gave a statement. So where's the proof? Exactly. So they move on with the case. And one of the detectives brought to testify relied heavily on Damon's Wiccan ways. And basically, like, that was, like, why he murdered the boys. He brings up the fact that water is, like, has a mystical um, significance and that the number three was a very sacred number. Um, Prosecution also really focused on the fact that Damien wore all black, and they also brought up 
that, according to the almanac, there was a full moon that night. We all know full moons are crazy. Right? A cult expert from Ohio was brought in to testify. Oh, damn Ohio. Damn Ohio. (laughs) Uh, So he again brought up the number three being a powerful number in satanic practice. And on cross-exam, it was actually brought up that, like, it was basically asked of him. But, you know, you're saying that, you know, the number three is so really prevalent in, like, satanic rituals and stuff like that. But isn't it also significant in Christianity? Bringing up the Trinity? And I was like, (laughs) And the guy's response was that he couldn't answer that. And then he quickly turned it back to satanic ritual. You didn't want to admit that you were caught. Because guess what? Like it or not, people, Christianity is heavily influenced by Wiccan uh, religion. There's many pagan beliefs that Christians have tried to readopt and make their own ways. The next person that was brought out was the medical examiner. And he was handed a knife by the prosecution that was found in a lake behind Damien's house. And the examiner said that was consistent with the serrated markings on Christopher. But not to be one-upped, the defense handed him a different knife. And he said it too was equally consistent with the wounds and you want to know who that knife belonged to john mark byers christopher's stepfather so in my opinion the defense does a great job of just kind of poking these holes like i mean you're what you're presenting is circumstantial at best The state brought in Michael Carson, who actually shared jail time with Jason, and Michael claimed that Jason confessed to him that he dismembered the kids and sucked the blood from the penis and scrotum and put the balls in his mouth. Like, he just, like, it's so outlandish what he, like, basically states. And... It's, like, disturbing, but, like, it helped the state's case to kind of tie in Jason because, like I said, he's just kind of floating in the background, like, yeah, I'm I'm friends with his guys. Like, if you go off of basically what they had, it was just, like, he was dragged along. He was like, all right, cool, I'm here. But this makes, like, this testimony basically makes him involved. And like I said, physical evidence is very lacking in this case, at least what they had tested and, like, had apparently found at the time, or at least had, because they lost stuff along the way. Again, there's basically none connecting Damon, Damien or Jason. Um, there was some blue wax that was found on one of the boys' shirts and some microscopic fibers, again, that were all said to be similar to these guys, but, like, nothing's a 100% match. The prosecution wrapped up with two girls who claimed to have heard Damien confess to to the murders while attending a softball game. 
One of the girls, Jody Medford, said at a distance of about 25 feet away, she heard Damien confess and said he was going to kill two more and already had one picked out. She and her mother never went to police, though. The defense brought um, Damien on the stand, and he was asked what he enjoyed doing, and it basically included things like skateboarding, talking on the phone, reading books. He was asked about his interest in Wicca religion, and he said it was basically because it's a close involvement with nature, and that he wasn't a Satanist. He was also asked why he had evil on his knuckles, and he said because he thought it looked cool. Shocker, we get a tattoo because we think it looks cool. Oh my gosh, that's a crazy idea. It has to have a meaning, don't you know? Sure. (laughs) When asked why he wore black, he said he was told he looked good in black, and he's self-conscious about, like, the way he looks so why not wear something that he's told he looks good in oh my god it's like he's a normal teen who was just a little weird he was asked how he felt about being charged with the murders and he said sometimes he felt angry sometimes he felt sad and sometimes he was just scared like you gotta think he's i think 17 i think that's why i said he was he's 17 like and you're being charged with murder Like, yeah, you'd be scared. I would be pissing my pants. (laughs) The investigation by detectives was brought into question, like, why none of the interviews with Damon were recorded. And, like, everything like that. Like, there's so much that is brought in. Like, the fact that, um, that night... There was apparently a guy that entered a, like, fast food, like, a Bojangles, I think is what it said. And he was bloody, and he went into the restroom and, like, left some blood on the walls and that, and left. And police came out, and apparently they took blood samples, but those blood samples were lost. Huh. How convenient. You don't say. So, (laughs) it's like, there's so much that just like you can point out with this investigation that you're like you really said I don't give a shit I know I can get this it's fine some other witnesses were brought in to help weaken the prosecution's case um and then the defense rested on March 17th closing statements were heard and the following afternoon the verdict was given Both defendants were found guilty of capital murder for the three boys. The family members of the murdered boys cheered and hugged. And Jason was very emotional. He seemed to cry. And, like, in all the pictures they show, like, Jason's definitely, like, head down. Like, you can can tell he's like, oh, man. And, like, it just so happens that Damien's, like, he sat there he's not really showing emotion which i know in the past we said that's like the look of like a psychopath but 
you also have to think Damien probably went into this knowing that his chances were not good. Mm -hmm. They were on a witch hunt and with everything that was said and it not getting like anything looking to go his way, he probably knew his chances were not good. So Terry Hobbs, Steve's stepfather, said he hoped both would be executed and he wished he could have 10 minutes in a room with them. Remember good old Terry because he gets brought up. Um, during the punishment phase of the trial, jurors had to listen to hours of testimony about Damien's mental health. After deliberating, the jury decided that they were going to sentence Jason to life in prison with no possibility of parole, and it was decided that Damien should die by lethal injection. He was set to die May 5th and was led out of the courtroom to be, oh, sorry, to begin his stay on death row. So, like, that's where that, like, part ends. As far as, like, the three murdered boys go, the boys were buried by their families. Steve was buried in Mount Zion Cemetery in Steele, Missouri. Christopher is buried in Forest Hill Cemetery in East Memphis, Tennessee. And Michael in Crittenden Memorial Park Cemetery in Marion, Arkansas. There's also a memorial located in the playground of Weaver Elementary School, which is where the boys attended. But, like I said, like, you have these three that got their sentence, but, like, the story doesn't end there. Because attorneys for Jesse, Jason, and Damien all filed appeals with the Arkansas Supreme Court. As they should. Yes. And on February 19th, 1996, a unanimous decision was made to uphold Jesse's conviction. And then 10 months later, they decided they were going to do the same thing with Jason and Damien's. So that, like, kind of puts a squash on, like, that for a little bit. But that's not the end because there was a fight to free these guys that people had started calling the West Memphis Three. In 1996, HBO actually released a documentary called Paradise Lost, the child murderers, the child murders at Robin Hood Hills. Sorry. <sighs> this caused controversy as it depicted West Memphis as a hellhole with residents believing in the fantasy of satanic cults and that the jurors like were not able to sort out facts from fiction and that um there was also like this caused a movement and a website to be dedicated to the release of the west memphis three oddly enough this also sparked a marriage Lori Davis, who was a landscape architect, began communicating with Damon after she saw the, like, the documentary. And they later 
married in December of 1999 in a Buddhist ceremony at the Maximum Security Prison. So, I mean, good on her for, I guess, seeing the good. Another film in March 2000 called Paradise Lost 2, Revelations, caused concern that the three had been wrong, wrongly convicted and suggested the real killer was John Mark Byers. Two years later, a book called Devil's Knot, the true story of the West Memphis Three by Mara Leverett, analyzed the case and pointed out the wrongful justice. And then in 2003, Vicki Hutchinson, I think is how you say her last name. She's the one that the waitress mm-hmm. met. She told a reporter that everything she told the police was a lie. Le shock. Who, who, what? <laughs> Somebody lied to the police? Right. She said she felt like she had to cooperate with police out of fear that they would take away her son if she didn't. Another bombshell was in 2007 when DNA was retested and none of it was found to be a match to Damien, Jason, or Jesse. There was a hair found in a knot used to tie up the victims that could possibly actually be traced to good old Terry Hobbs. With the new evidence, John Mark Byers now said he believed the three were innocent. So, the judge from their original case was unmoved by this new evidence, and attorneys then decide they're going to take it to the Arkansas Supreme Court. And finally, on November 4th, 2010, the Arkansas Supreme Court said due to new evidence and juror misconduct, it justified for a new trial or exoneration. In August 2012, Damien waited for word as to if Jason would agree to enter the Alford plea, which is basically them saying guilty but yet maintaining innocence. It was something they wanted, the state wanted all three to basically agree to. But Jason, Jason basically was holding this all up because he actually grew to like jail. He had a job, he made friends, like he was teaching like a school class and everything. Like it was, he was having a good time. And he actually later said he took the deal not for himself, but for Damien. Which, that's a good friend. It's a real good friend. Because it's, like, Damien actually, like, released, like, an article or a book. I don't remember what it was. And he would just, like, he talks about his time, um, like, waiting for Jason's decision to come back. He's still on death row. So, like, he's in, like, a little two-by-two, like, cell. He said he literally would walk, like, two steps to the front, two steps from the back. And after he'd get tired of walking that way, he'd go side to side. Like, it was just, he was pacing. He said he didn't eat. He didn't sleep. He just was waiting to see if Jason would come through and basically set him free. Me too. Right. So, at the hearing on August 19th, 2011, Judge 
Davis Lasser called what happened a tragedy on all sides. He then ruled that Jesse Miss, Miss Kelly, Jason Baldwin, and Damian Eccles were allowed to walk free. So they finally, finally. yes, finally, after years, they were finally able to go free and basically live their lives, do what they wanted. Now, there are some theories as to what actually happened to the three murdered boys, and one that has really, like, kind of sparked a big following was actually caused by a documentary that was released by Peter Jackson in 2012. And if that name sounds familiar to you, think Lord of the Rings. So, the, this documentary focused on Terry Hobbs, the stepfather of Steve Branch. You know, the same guy that said he just wished he could have 10 minutes in a room with, with these guys. Mm-hmm. So, the documentary points out that one of the most significant pieces of DNA evidence is that one hair that was found on a knot that was used to tie up the boys and that it's actually a match for Hobbs, but it's also like a one a match for 1.5% of the population, so it's like not 100%, but you have someone close to this case that it's a match for what is, like, one of the main rules when looking at, like, victims? You start with the family and friends. You start with the people close. Usually it's the husband. Yep. But as a kid, you don't got a husband. Right. It also brings up another hair found on a tree stump near where the boys were found was a match to a man named David Jacoby, who was a friend of Hobbs. Hobbs also had a history of abuse. He actually admitted to assaulting his wife, and he was accused of child beating and assaults on his neighbors. So he sounds like a great guy. I mean, why would we ever suspect him? Um, An aunt also said that she saw Hobbs doing laundry on the night of the murders. And, I mean... You could say, oh, he's just doing laundry, but also, like, is that his way of basically cleaning his clothes of mud or blood? So, either it's just a random laundry day, or um, you try to cover up something, buddy. Also in the documentary, it's noted that a prized pocket knife of Steve's was found among Hobbs' things. So, he's not making himself look that great. In the film, a nephew of Terry Hobbs also, like, it's claimed through, this is kind of like a third party story because you have these three boys in this film that say that they heard from Hobbs's nephew that the fact that Terry murdered the boys is a well-kept family secret. So, again, a lot he said, she said. But, I mean, he's looking like a good suspect to me. 
in 2013, we got our first glimpse of what may be, like, what happened to these poor boys that were murdered. And affidavits that, like, individual affidavits signed by Billy Wayne Stewart and Benny Guy gave a plausible story. Now... Stewart is a known drug dealer, and Benny Guy is a convicted felon. So, again, you have to take everything with a little grain of salt. But it seems like a very plausible story. So, they say that on May 5th, 1993, Terry Hobbs, David Jacoby, and two teenage boys from a local trailer park showed up at Stewart's home looking to buy pot. Stuart then says as he's selling these teens pot, he noticed that Terry and David were kissing in a truck across the street. Now, it's said that Hobbs was a bisexual with a preference for sex with young boys. So, do with that what you will. After leaving with the pot, Hobbs, Jacoby, and the two boys then are said to have drove around smoking the pot and drinking whiskey till they drove to Blue Beacon Wood. The boys were asked to get out and wrestle while the others watched. It's not directly said that things turned sexual, but it's heavily implied. And when this all is happening, that's when it's believed that the three boys showed up on their bicycles and chaos just took over. Hobbs is said to have yelled, get them little fuckers, which then prompted Jacoby to grab one of the boys and beat him. This is believed to be Christopher uh, Byers, based on what is said to have happened next. After, like, the boys are basically detained and whatnot, Hobbs is said to have walked over to the beaten boy, bit his genitals before having them cut off. Then he ordered for the others to be killed since they saw too much. So why did Stewart never reach out to the police? He says he he claims that in 1995 he actually did and his phone call was never returned. The West Memphis Three continued to fight for their justice and the justice of the murdered boys. They want to clear their names, but they also want to find who killed these boys. Damien now lives in Salem, Massachusetts with his wife. He has gone paragliding with Peter Jackson in New Zealand and has become friends with Johnny Depp. I want to say, Damien, if you're listening, hook me up. Please. I want to be friends with Johnny Depp. Jesse has kept a fairly low profile. He continues to live and work in West Memphis and is reluctant to talk to media. Jason actually helped produce a film about the West Memphis case called Devil's Knot. And this stars Reese Witherspoon and Colin Firth. Which I'm shocked I've not seen because I fucking love Reese Witherspoon. I love both of them. Right? The Mr. original, Darcy. well, not original, but like Mr. Darcy, the first version of Mr. Darcy that we're uh, 
familiar with. with. <laughs> the 1990 version. Yes. So new information is slowly coming out about this case. Like it's recently just got a new like kind of push um, for like efforts in trying to convict the real killers. The three men actually like went to court seeking for the DNA to be retested in this case using new methods, but it was denied stating that it wouldn't prove that Eccles was innocent and that most of the testing nowadays is a one shot and done sort of deal. And I was like, it still sounds like you're one of the motherfuckers that believes this occult shit to which there's no proof of. But that is my West Memphis 3 case. Like I said, I tried to include like important stuff and skim over some of the like long I don't want to say boring stuff, but like the stuff that would have made this like a three part episode <laughs> like but it's definitely a crazy one. And like I said, it's definitely dark. I really do hope that one day we do have the answers of what happened to these boys. And I feel like that could get done if... We had the evidence. Yeah, if we had the <laughs> evidence. And if, you know, they would stop, you know, tiptoeing around and just... Do the damn thing. Do the damn thing and test this DNA stuff that we have such, like, advanced like gear in now like it's like i don't understand why they don't i it's like unless you're trying to cover for somebody what do you have to lose and they are trying to cover for somebody clearly right so this is one we'll definitely keep an eye on i know there's a few i think i think one of our podcasts morbid i think just kind of did something slightly on it. Elena is very up to date with this case, I do know. Um, So so they did like a three or four parter on this case and then like every other episode it feels like she's updating on how you can help with this. So we will try to get some of that information on this podcast as well, but if not, I highly recommend listening to Morbid. They're phenomenal. Their research is incredible. They are well-spoken. They are classy ladies, unlike the two of us. <laughs> um, just highly recommend. So if you do want like more detailed information, there's a lot of research out of, out there. But if you're looking for something that's easy to listen to and digest, Morbid has a great like mini-series yes. on this. So definitely keep this one in the back of your mind. Like I said, we'll try to update you as we can if something happens and... If you see it on some other podcast, definitely give it a listen because, like I said, they could go over something that either I skipped or, like, just in my research, like, it didn't pop up. Yeah. So, with that being said, I know this was a long one, but we'll kick you off to our last call. Welcome back to another Last Call with Sloan. Today we are going to do fun facts about Memphis. And yes, I am aware that (laughs) West Memphis is in Arkansas. It's not actually Memphis, Tennessee. But But it's it's very close. But 
I love Memphis. So we're going to talk about (laughs) Memphis. And I'm going to try to keep this short, but it is like a 25 fact, fun fact thing. This is already a long episode, so I am going to try to run through this. One, Andrew Jackson is regarded as one of the city's founders. In 1819, Old Hickory teamed up with two other land spectators, Judge John Overton and General James Winchester, to establish Memphis as a hotspot for commerce. Its beginnings were humble. The place initially consisted of nothing but a fort, a trading post, and a handful of cabins, which is crazy to think about if you've gone to Memphis. Yeah. Two, it's named after Memphis, Egypt, which served as that civilization's ancient capital until Alexandria took over the role sometime around 320 BCE. Three, The 1862 naval battle of Memphis pitted two Union fleets against a lone Confederate one. Each of the three was commanded by an officer with no prior experience in river-based warfare. Even more incredibly, two of those men lacked any sort of military experience whatsoever. Hmm. Four. Meat lovers, hey hey, recognize four primary barbecue styles. North Carolina, Kansas City, Texas, and of course, Memphis Barbecue. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh, God. You're going to have people arguing in the like comments and what about what's the better barbecue. Hey, it's where you grow up at. And I grew up in Mississippi. So Memphis is where it's at for me. I will say they do neglect Alabama barbecue on this list. But Alabama barbecue sauce is like a white-based barbecue sauce. It's fucking delicious, but I don't think it should be called a barbecue sauce. Anyways, (laughs) in western Tennessee, barbecue chefs relish a distinctive and rather sweet sauce. This topping exposes Memphis for the major port it's always been. While cooks in other southern cities used whatever local ingredients they could find, early Memphians could choose what was shipped up and down the Mississippi. Thus, molasses became a popular cornerstone in Tennessee barbecue sauces. And all I have to say is if you go onto uh, Beale Street, Beale Street's Memphis, yes. yes, they have barbecue sauces, like you can, barbecue restaurants, and you can go in there and you can eat and they you can buy their barbecue sauces. And they have sweet, spicy, and everything in between. It's all delicious all delicious the next fun fact robert r church park was created by and named after one of america's first black millionaires the former slave bought a huge chunk of land near bill street in 1899 a grand community center for african americans the park boasted an auditorium with over 2,000 seats that church personally financed that's awesome six Mark Twain once called Memphis the Good Samaritan City of Mississippi. (laughs) Nowadays, it usually goes by nicknames such as Bluff City, Hoop City, and the Home of the Blues. Yeah. And I... The Home of the Blues? uh, That's the Mississippi Delta, if you ask me. But once again, that's another argument to have on another day. (laughs) Number seven, one of 1912's biggest hits, Memphis Blues by W.C. Handy, was first commercially successful blues song ever written. Handy based the tune on a campaign jing- jingle that was used by Memphian mayoral candidate Edward Crump. 
Number eight, Congress officially recognized Beale Street as the home of the blues in 1977. Middle finger there. <laughs> given that every icon from Louis Armstrong to Muddy Waters to B.B. King performed here at some point, the choice was a no-brainer. Okay, I agree with that, but the blues was born and raised out of the Mississippi Delta. Once again, another argument to have on another day. Sloan, <laughs> shut up. <clears throat> Nine, we can all thank an unemployed bear for Memphis's world-class zoo. Like many baseball clubs, the now-defunct Memphis Turtles used a live mascot, frightening home crowds with an ursin named Notch. A gift from businessman A.B. Carothers, Natch's career didn't last long and he was promptly returned. <laughs> Unable to accommodate the beast at his home, Carothers chained him to a tree in Overton Park. Soon, a number of other unwanted pets joined him there. This prompted Colonel Robert Galloway, who headed the Parks Commission, to request funding for a zoo in 1906, leading to the Memphis Zoo. 10. Once upon a time, American shoppers couldn't peruse grocery aisles for themselves. Instead, customers had to give their list to the grocers, who'd then turn around and gather the items. Enter Piggly Wiggly. <laughs> The nation's first self-service grocery store. After the original outlet opened in Memphis on September 6, 1916, it became a widespread chain. I grew up with Piggly Wigglies. I, my stepmom worked for Piggly Wiggly at one point. I have a very brief history with a stepmom. She was in the family for like three days, three years, not three days, three years. <laughs> I three wish days. It was, I wish it was three days. But she worked at the Piggly Wiggly, so great thing. Nice. 11. Often regarded as the first rock and roll record ever made, Rocket 88 by Jackie Brinston was produced at the historic Sun Record Studio, a.k.a. Sun Studios, on Union Street in 1951. The establishment then became a hit-generating machine, churning out smash singles such as Blue Suede Shoes by Carl Perkins, Great Balls of Fire by Jerry Lee Lewis and Johnny Cash's I Will Walk the Line. It closed its doors, finally reopening nearly three decades later after the after necessary renovations were complete. You can actually go today and tour the Sun Studios, and I highly recommend that. It's a great experience. 12. Back in 1953, Sun Studios would let any passerby record an album for $3.98 plus tax. That summer, a teenage trucker from Mississippi walked in and made one for his mother's birthday. Present at the session was the studio founder, Sam Phillips, who was large, largely unimpressed by this greenhorn singer. His secretary, however, heard something she liked, and at her recommendation, the artist was invited back for a second session on July 5th, 1954. <laughs> who was it? Elvis? It was Elvis! <laughs> singing that's all right well that's all right baby <laughs> that's all right Let's to me say, uh, sloan's other love here da, 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 da. <laughs> number 13 johnny cash worked in town as a door-to-door -door appliance salesman before his music career took off yep i love me some johnny cash you can have johnny cash i'll take elvis it's okay fine. Number 14, after retiring from showbiz, the original MGM lion was moved to the Memphis Zoo where he passed away in 1944. I didn't know that one. That was a fun one to learn. Huh. 
15. The last home that Elvis ever owned is now a prime tourist magnet. Every year, Graceland is the second most visited private home in America, trailing only after the White House. Once again, that is another tour I highly recommend. If you are interested, like, I think the house tour is like $25, $30, and for like $5, $10 extra dollars, you can see the planes and everything else. You can skip the planes and everything else. Just go to Graceland. But if you're a big Elvis fan, for $5, $10, you can see everything else. Yeah. So, you do you, boo. 16. By the way, Graceland's name has nothing to do with the king. Originally, the property belonged to S.E. Took, a newspaper, newspaper publisher who named it after his daughter, Grace. Presley bought the place in 19, 1957 at the age of 22 and rebranded it. 17. The former Lorraine Motel, where Martin Luther King Jr. was murdered in 1968, has been converted into a National Civil Rights Museum. Once again, if you're in Memphis, you're looking for things to do during the daytime, these tours are great things, and then you can hit up Bill Street at night and do your whole thing. Yes. 18. If you check out the famous Orpheum Theater, be wary of the, of the uh, northern side. Rumor has it that Mary, the shoeless ghost of a 12-year-old girl, can often be seen enjoying shows from the seat C C5, which is like the balcony. And I have to say that I have been to a lot of shows and I've looked for this ghost. Trish, I'm sorry. I haven't seen her. But that is one place that I will go with you to do a haunted thing. All because right. I was like, oh, a ghost? A ghost? I've seen Wicked there. I've seen... Chicago, I've seen Phantom of the Opera. The Opera. I was like, the Phantom of the Orpheum. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. Not quite. But yes, that's all. The Phantom of the Opera. I have yet to see a ghost there there. So that is one place that I will definitely go with you to check for ghosts. But uh all I'm gonna right. sit down there and watch the show while you <laughs> observe. All right. Eh. Number 19, several prominent celebrities hail from Memphis, including, no, that's false. So this says Morgan Freeman is from Memphis. He's actually from the Mississippi Delta. He might have been born in Memphis, but he was born and raised in the Mississippi Delta. I will say a celebrity that I do know that's from Memphis is Justin Timberlake. Yeah. So I do know that. The city's annual Cooper Young Festival attracts over 130,000 people every year. Visitors can enjoy live music, art sales, and an ocean of craft beer. I have not heard of sounds that like one. Sounds like a good time, but also sounds like a lot of people. I haven't heard of that one, but they have like the Memphis in May, every May. And so like the first weekend is a music festival. And the next weekend is like barbecue. And like every weekend they do oh. different things. I've been to Memphis in May. I actually saw uh, Katy Perry open for the All-American Rejects. And yes, Katy Perry was the opening act. That's how <laughs> long ago this was. <laughs> but went to Memphis in May. And if you do go to Memphis in May, or if you're ever in Memphis, chances are you will catch 3-6 Mafia, or at least one of the people in 3-6 Mafia somewhere performing. Sounds like, sign me up! <laughs> Slap on my knob. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, this is an explicit show. <laughs> <laughs> 20. 
21. When gazing at the city skyline, one building sticks out like an ancient sore thumb. The modern reimagining of Egypt's ar architectural wonders, the famed Memphis Pyramid, was built in 1991. Originally conceived as an indoor sports venue, it's now a hotel and a Bass Pro Shop megastore. It's not the Bass Pro. It's a very popular stop, if you imagine it or not. It is. Inside, visitors can hitch a ride on America's tallest freestanding elevator, which stands 320 feet tall and stops at 28 floors. Oh. I feel like that's got to be off. Like, there's got to be higher elevators in New York City and, like, I, yeah. I don't know. I feel like that's bullshit. I'm calling bullshit on that one. In 2012, Justin Timberlake became a minority owner of the hometown Memphis Grizzlies. I was going to say the Grizzlies. I knew that. Yep. 23, the University of Memphis's athletic teams are known as the Tigers. Yep. My brother went there. In 2012, to honor the school's centennial, 100 differently painted tiger statues were displayed on campus. Including one that was designed after Van Gogh's Starry Night. That's yep. fun. If you're in the mood for an adventure, known that most of them are now viewable at various locations around Memphis. 24, FedEx, a company that ships up to 22 million packages per day, has been headquartered there since 1973. I did know that. 25, Memphis is home to the most spoiled ducks on planet Earth. Bluff City's ritziest five-star hotel is an establishment called the Peabody. And in 1932, manager Frank Schutt and his hunting buddy decided to amuse the customers by placing five live ducks in the lobby's waters fountain. Yeah. Schutt's guests adored these feathered friends, and today the Peabody is home of an all-new flock. The birds might mostly while away their days inside a $200,000 duck penthouse. Sign me up to be a duck. Right. However, every day at 11 a.m. on the dock, they are escorted down the elevators. They go down the elevators. I've seen this. They are escorted down the elevators, and then they walk out into the lobby and go into the fountain. And they are escorted by an impeccably dressed employee down to Italian Marble Fountain for a six-hour swim for the day. How do I get that job? I want to be the duck wrangler. <laughs> Let me wrangle them ducks. <laughs> how, how do I get that job? I will also say, um, if you do go to Memphis and you're doing tours, I highly, highly recommend doing a food tour. I did a food tour. I, I try to do food tours everywhere that I go because one, you get to be shown around to some of like the best restaurants in the city and you get really great service because yeah. like they have the stuff waiting for you and it's just, it's there and it's ready. But on a lot of these food tours, you get history of the city, too. And so on my history of Memphis food tour sort of situation, they talked about how Memphis actually like almost went down in their economy in the early 1900s. And pretty much like the wealthy citizens of Memphis put their own personal money back into the city to rebuild it and to build a good commissary sort of state of city. And that was just really interesting to me because I've mentioned before, I'm from Mississippi. I was born and raised in Jackson, Mississippi. Okay. If you know anything that's going on right now, um, Jackson is kind of the new, uh, what's the name? Not Detroit, uh, the water 
not Ferguson, the water crisis. Um, yeah, I can't think of it. I, I cannot think of the town. I cannot think of the town name, but Jackson is currently in a water crisis. Uh, one of the water plants have gone down and there is no drinkable or usable water in the city of Jackson or within like miles around it. And a lot of people are like, oh, you know, this is a brand new thing. No, this shit has been going on since I was a child growing up in this area. And like, just nothing has been done about it. The water is bad. I don't remember my original. Oh, so I was talking about how Memphis got turned around. But like, Jackson has been a really bad city for a long time. The water has been in a bad state for a long time. And whenever we were in Memphis and they were like, yeah, this is the state of the city. And then a lot of the city entrepreneurs put the money back in the city. I was sitting there being like, Memphis back 50, 75 years ago sounds like Jackson nowadays. Yeah. But like, Nobody wants to put the money in to fix Jackson, Mississippi. Nobody wants to fix Jackson, Mississippi. I've only been to Memphis once. And that was to visit my brother when he was in school there. He went to one of the football games. And I remember we left early because um, they're not very good. <laughs> um, but we didn't really do too much just because like the area that the university is in is not a great area they literally tell their students not to go off campus unless you're going far off if you don't know where to be in memphis it is a sketchy city to be in but if you know where to be in just yeah. you know be safe be aware ladies gentlemen everybody carry pepper spray with you we also like this is not something that I wanted to address at all. Like, but recently there is the case of the woman that was running downtown in Memphis and she was kidnapped on her run at four 30 in the morning. And so like a lot of people are trying to blame her. Why was she out at four 30 in the morning? Why was she wearing what she was wearing? And she did not deserve what happened to her. Yeah. Nobody deserves to not feel safe doing normal daily activities but what we can do is set ourselves up for situations like that. And what I mean by that is pay the money for pepper spray, pay the money for a taser. I bought those things to keep my dog safe on my walk. And to be honest, I've used it more to keep myself safe than to keep them safe. And I bought it for yeah. them. So like, regardless of where you live, whether it's a city or out in bumfuck Mississippi or, you know, Midwest, I don't care. Get something to keep yourself safe. Be prepared. Be aware of your surroundings. And that's everything that like we can do. Shit yeah. can shit can still happen to you. I'm not trying to say that that would have prevented what happened. Yeah. But If you're petty like me, they've started making uh, pepper spray with dye in it so that when you use it on somebody, it stains their face and whatever. Yes. I'm like, <laughs> yes. So buy that. If that makes you feel better, maybe somebody, if you're listening out there and you're great at inventing things, I would love a glitter pepper spray because if I spray somebody's ass, I want them to be sparkling like a motherfucking <laughs> diamond. So whenever the cops show up, I'm like, it's that disco ball over there. <laughs> That one. 
over oh, there. Oh my! But, but stay safe. Stay aware. Stay aware. Thank you for hanging out with us today. You can always catch us on our socials. We have Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram. They are all Tequila She Wrote across the board. We have our email, tequilasherote at gmail.com. If you have any case suggestions, cocktail recipes, I'm on the lookout for a homemade apple cider recipe. So if anybody has a great recipe for that, send it our way. Um, we do have our Patreon set up for as little as $2 a month. You get ad-free episodes and you get a bonus episode. And then if you pay a little bit more, we have even more bonus content. Sloan does A Rune in Paradise, where she tells you like kind of like a murder story. A ruin story. vacation. Yeah, she pre- basically it's like another murder story, but then like it's also ruining where we're going to vacation. So, <laughs> and then mine is a haunted episode, as Sloan has mentioned many a times. I am a haunted, like, connoisseur. <laughs> I love my haunted shit. So, I go and I do some different places or, like, people and stuff. And, yeah. But if you're interested in that, check us out. Easiest way to find our Patreon is going to patreon.com backslash tequila she wrote. Or you can go to our socials, find our link tree, and get a direct link. If you want to be adventurous and try to find us just by searching us on there, good luck to you. <laughs> <laughs> We're not popular enough. But thanks for riding on the Hot Mess Express today. Toot toot. Beep beep. Beep beep.